So this morning, let's uh, turn in God's word to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 26 and read through the end of the chapter, which is verse 31. Let's give our attention now to God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for preserving it for us. Lord, that we might have it this day. It's been read and a language we understand, but we ask now that you would give us spiritual understanding. Open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things. Teach us and train us, correct us, rebuke us for righteousness sake. Oh God, make us more like Jesus. Comfort and establish our hearts. God, I pray for your people. Encourage them. Remind them, oh God, impress these precious truths that we will discuss today upon their hearts. And God, help me, your servant, keep me from error. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this summer we're taking a break from the book of Exodus. And this morning, we're actually embarking on a five-week journey to answer an age-old question. That question is, who am I? Who am I? Since the beginning of time, many answers have been offered. And still today, many answers continue to be offered. But as God's people, we should be convinced that a question like this, a question as fundamental and monumental as this one, cannot be answered by mythology. It cannot be answered by biology. It cannot be answered by philosophy. And it certainly cannot be answered by psychology. As God's people, we must be convinced that such a question, such a fundamental and monumental question as this, can only be answered by God. It can only be answered by God himself. And so it's right to ask, to where would we go to find such an answer? Where else but right here? Right here in his holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Only here in the Bible, in the pages of his special revelation to us. His revealed will for all mankind contained here. Only here can we find the true answer to this most important, monumental, fundamental question. 
And so for the next five weeks, this is where we will turn to for the answer. This morning, we turn there to Genesis 1, as we've done. We turn there to offer the first part of our answer to this question, for how could we just answer this question in one simple answer, right? So we're going to unfold it over the five weeks ahead. We're going to look at the very first part of that answer. Who am I? I am an image bearer. Put it another way, who am I? I bear the image of God. As those who have been made in his image, as we saw there in Genesis 1, we are image bearers. But that brings up a question. What does that mean? What does that mean? What does it mean that we have been made in God's image? So we're going to start this morning by answering that. What does it mean that we've been made in God's image? If you're taking notes this morning, I know many of you do, our outline is going to look a little different than usual. We're going to start with that question, spend some time answering it. And then what I want to do is follow that up with three implications. So three truths that flow from that central truth. So first of all, let's answer the question, what does it mean that we have been made in God's image? Genesis chapter 1 as a whole, we didn't read the whole thing, but Genesis chapter 1 presents as a whole a sweeping picture of God creating all things out of nothing in the span of six days. In very general detail, Moses, and you'll remember that we believe Moses to be the human author of the book of Genesis, Moses offers us what God did during each day. He just goes through. Here's what he did on the first day, second day, third day, and so on. But if you'll pay attention, when he gets to the third day, the fifth day, and the sixth day, so if you look at verses 11 through 13 and 20 through 25, Moses notes many times that the vegetation of the earth... The birds of the air, the creatures of the water, and the livestock, and the creeping things, and the beasts of the earth were all created what? According to their kinds. They were created according to their kinds. In fact, you can just turn to verses 24 and 25, and he says it five times. In just those two verses, according to their kind. But in verses 26 and 27, where we started, which is the culmination of the sixth day, we see a deviation From this pattern, we see a deviation from this pattern. Mankind is not created according to their kinds. But rather, look there at verse 26. Man is created not according to his kinds. In our image, after our likeness. And look at verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. What is God telling us? What is he telling us here? Well, we can begin by saying that God is telling us that man is distinct. When I say man, I mean mankind, man and woman, all of mankind. Mankind is distinct. Man is not just another animal. He's not just smarter than the animals. He's not just more highly evolved and more highly developed. No, he is of a different kind altogether. Mankind and mankind alone has been created in the image of God. We might say he's in another genus altogether. Scientist Nigel Cameron recently asserted uh, in a way that shocked his audience because they weren't expecting him to say this. He says, we as humans are in the genus of God. 
Now, this runs counter to our modern classification systems. I'm a biologist. Some of you have studied biology. You know how classification works. That runs counter to the classification system many of us have learned in school or otherwise. But it's nevertheless precisely what God wants us to see here in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We're not just another animal made on the sixth day like the other animals. We're different. We're distinct. We've been made in his image. The Hebrew word for image here, zelem, it means literally something cut from an object. For example, a piece of clay that is cut from a sculpture is called a selim. And in such a case, there exists a concrete resemblance between the object and the image. In the Bible, this word selim can also, uh, in many times, denote a statue, a statue that someone uh, erects. Think of a king. A king would erect a statue that serves as a symbol of himself, a symbol of his sovereignty. Perhaps you might think of Daniel chapter 3, Nebuchadnezzar. So one of my mentors, John Currid, he aptly notes, he says, the fact that Selim is applied to humans at creation indicates that they are God's representatives here on earth and that they have a character and being in keeping with the deity. So we might actually say that humans, you and I, we've been cut from God's image. We've been cut from God's image. Now, that can lead to a lot of dangerous things, right? Uh, this does not mean that we ourselves are gods. We are not. We are still creatures. We have been created by the creator. But in a very special way, in a way set apart so clearly and distinctly in scripture, not just here, but in other places, it means that we've been created to represent God. We've been created to represent him. And not just God in the general sense, but God in specific Notice even here, in the first chapter of the Bible, we get a hint to the triune nature of God. Look what it says. Let us make man in our image. Let us make man in our image. God is speaking to himself in the plural. We have here a inter, excuse me, inner Trinitarian conversation, a discussion between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And if you read Genesis 1, you know the Spirit is hovering over the waters. Of course, the Gospel of John tells us that Jesus was there, the one who created all things. Here, we've got it all put together that Father, Son, and Spirit are talking to each other and saying, let us create man in our image. He will be like us. He will be relational like we are. He will be spiritual like we are. He will reflect us. So the point is this. You and I are distinct from all the rest of creation and that we've been created in God's image. Is there another part of creation that can say that? No. We are completely and entirely set apart from everything else. Some have said it this way, we are the crowning jewel of creation because we alone have been chosen to bear God's image. So who are we? Week one, we are image bearers. So with that in mind, I want to move on to those three 
specific implications, hopefully very practical implications that flow from this truth that we bear God's image. The first, we are not accidents. We are not accidents. Or to put it another way, who am I? I am not an accident. If we were to only listen to current thought, particularly current scientific thought of the last 200 years or so, we would answer the question, who am I, in a different way. Perhaps we would answer it this way. We would say, you are the result of chance and natural selection that has formed a random collection of atoms resulting in a highly evolved type of animal species. In other words, you're a cosmic accident. You are nothing more than chance and circumstances coalescing together to make something viable and useful. This is what the world says. And I submit to you that that's actually a really terrible view of humanity. That is a sad and terrible, albeit unbiblical, view of humanity. It reminds me, and some of you may remember this comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes. In the first panel, young Calvin is seen standing, staring up at the night sky, all those stars, myriad of stars overhead. Suddenly in the second panel, you see him screaming, I am significant! The third panel goes back to the first, except he's looking the other direction now, perhaps waiting for an answer. And then in the fourth panel, he finishes his thought, I'm significant! All caps, screaming, last panel, says the speck of dust. But Calvin, we are more than specks of insignificant dust. Do you hear me? You're more than a speck of insignificant dust. We are the absolutely significant and special creation of God. Psalm 139 in particular addresses this. I won't turn to it because we've already sang five verses from it. We, we heard it summarized in that song that Abby Kate just sang for us. It tells us about how we have been wonderfully and fearfully designed by God and put together by him. It says that he knit us together in our mother's womb. Each of us, every single one of you, I know that not many of us look in the mirror and say, wow, God did a good job. Because we say, oh man, that, that's not right. You'd be arrogant. But particularly young people, listen to me, perhaps you need to do that. Except maybe change it a little bit. God, thank you for making me just the way you did. God, God doesn't make accidents. He created you. He made you specifically and specially. We are special creation. We're made by God and for God. God makes us exactly who he wants us to be. He knows our days, our coming and going, our length of days. I love how Psalm 139 goes, who can think of this? Such thoughts are too wonderful for me. And that's where I want you to rest. I want you to find yourself there. Wow. Look what God did. Many years I spent teaching biology to homeschool students, and that was always our theme every day. 
I would tell the students, not many of you are going to become scientists. I recognize that. A lot of you don't even want to be here. But this is what we're going to do every day. We're going to make sure that we say, look what God did. Look at what God did. How cool is that? Whether it's a mushroom or a bacteria or a panther, look what God did. That's what I want you to do. Look what God did. You see, when we cast off the lies that we are only the sum of impersonal forces of chance and random genetic changes, and if we by faith embrace the scriptural truth that we are the special creation of God, there we will find significance. So please hear me. You are not just a cosmic accident. You are God's handiwork. I don't have time this morning to go into an apology or a defense of creation, special creation. Come and see me or one of the other elders. If you have questions about that, I understand there's a lot to take in. But please don't, don't, don't get stuck there. Look what God did. He made you. He made you specially. He made you in his image. This brings us to our second implication of being made in God's image. We are not our feelings. Or maybe say it another way, we are not the sum of our feelings. It was the 20th century philosopher, maybe someone with a better French accent could say this than me, but Jean-Paul Sartre, who famously answered the question, who am I? Anybody know what he said? I am a useless passion. I am a useless passion. In other words, what he was saying is this, okay, if I understand his thought He's saying, I am what I feel. My feelings make me who I am. And because feelings are subjective, that is not objective, they're subjective, then he would say life itself is subjective. And if life is subjective, then life is meaningless. Because how can you find a definite meaning in that? You following me? Useless passions. I hope you see the futility of such thinking. Perhaps I should say the foolishness of such thinking. If you think about it, his thoughts in the early early to mid-20th century continued to grow through the end, and this won't be a philosophy lecture, don't worry, the end of the 20th century until today, what are people doing? Searching for meaning and significance. Not an objective truth, but where? They're seeking for it inside, in their feelings. These philosophies have come home to roost. People elevate, we do in sin, right? We elevate subjective feelings far and above any objective reality or truth. Oops. You realize that it's become offensive in our day to speak of any type of objective reality or objective truth? Maybe you don't talk to the same people I talk to. or It's offensive these days. What do we hear instead? Not a reality or a truth. What do we hear? My reality. Your truth. My truth. It's actually become quite revolutionary to instead speak of one reality or one truth. Who would have thought? I guess it's the closest I might be to being a revolutionary. There is truth. There is objective truth and objective reality. The result of that subjective 
passion and subjective feeling and the, the search for meaning there is manifest all around us. I mean, people are seeking to solely define themselves and their world by their feelings and it's resulted in almost utter chaos. I'll give an illustration here and I wanna be sensitive in this illustration. The modern transgender movement I said I want to be sensitive because I recognize we've got young ears here. And I also recognize that many of us know people who suffer with this. So I want to be sensitive. But God's word makes it clear objectively. I'm speaking of an objective reality. God's word makes it clear in our passage that he's created mankind how? Male and female. These are concrete realities. They're biological and genetic realities you are born either male or female. And so apart from the rare genetic anomaly, and those do exist, they're rare, there is not a biological spectrum. The only spectrum there is is what? A subjective, feelings-based spectrum. Not a biological spectrum. A subjective, feelings-based and I understand that people struggle emotionally with identifying with their biologically assigned gender. That's happened for a long time. The difference is, is we used to enter into those people's lives and help them and get them counseling and to address it from an objective truth. But what's happened is the objective truth has become less and less something that we stand on we begin to tell people, well, go ahead and identify with your feelings. Go ahead and do what makes you happy. We need to do everything we can to prop up your feelings, to support your feelings, and to move you in a direction of your feelings. Embrace your feelings. How about this? Follow your heart. I remember I thought I was going to get fired, but I walked into a youth group meeting, and my entire message was, don't follow your heart. Because your heart is desperately sick and wicked above all things, the prophet Jeremiah tells us. Follow Christ. Follow the Bible. So what are we doing? We're telling people, go to whatever length is necessary to make the outward match the inward. Okay? So that used to just be something on this, the fringe of society. Now we celebrate it. And probably most troubling is it's being imposed on our children. And the consequences are absolutely devastating. Listen, I know some of you struggle with this. Some of you know people and love people who struggle with it. I do not mean to speak in a condemning of that individual way, but to speak in general, to use it as an illustration. Most people need help. They need the gospel. They need hope. And God's called us to bring it to them. And so we love them and we bring the gospel to them, and we help them. But that's just one illustration. I could go on and on, right? Think of the many ways that destruction occurs when we elevate feelings over reality. Can you just think of a few, maybe? Whatever they are, think of this. You are not defined by your feelings. You are not. Those are, that's a lie of the devil, you are not defined by your feelings. You are defined by who God says you are. Your feelings ebb, your feelings flow. Guess what doesn't? God's word. God's word never changes. 
And so what we're called to do is to define and interpret ourselves, our thoughts, our feelings, our passions, and everything in between. We need to define and interpret ourselves in light of objective reality and truth that's presented in God's word. So who am I? I am not who I feel I am. I am who God says I am. That's hard. I confess that there are some days that I just don't even want to get out of bed because I think of all the problems that I have. Some of you can identify. Who am I to point these people to Jesus? Who am I to take care of my family and love my children well? Who am I? Do you ever feel that way? I feel this way. So how do we keep going? Well, first, and I want to make sure I say this because... A little off script, but very important. Feelings are important. Feelings are important and they must be addressed. They have to be addressed. They must be nurtured and talked about. Please don't take home from this, well, I just got to deny all feelings and just look to the objective truth. Yes, you need to look to the objective truth, but you have to define and interpret those feelings in light of objective truth, which is hard work, right? It's hard work. But that's what we're called to do. That's why we need each other. Here at the chapel, we want to share our lives together. Are you struggling with something? Are you talking to someone about it? Hey, guys, are you talking to someone about it? Guys aren't the only ones who aren't good at talking about their feelings. Ladies, are you talking to someone about it? Yeah, point each other to Jesus. Point each other to objective truth. That brings us to our third and final implication of being made in God's image. We are not worthless. We are not worthless. The Bible insists that we've been created with value, intrinsic value. What we mean when we say that, and part of being made in God's image, is that we share some of God's characteristics. That's what I didn't get to in the opening, because I wanted to save it for here. A big part of being made in God's image is that we share some of God's characteristics. And in theology, and I could call in my officer candidates to, to go over this, but uh, we generally distinguish God's characteristics, or we might say his attributes, into two categories. Perhaps you've heard this before. There's his incommunicable attributes or characteristics and his communicable characteristics or attributes. Bear with me for a second. Incommunicable attributes are those that we cannot share with God. We, we, he cannot pass those on to us. They are not able to be communicated. This is what incommunicable means. So think about that. God can know all things. He's omniscient. Can you know all things? Okay. He um, has infinite power, so he's omnipotent. He's able to be everywhere all at the same time. He's omnipresent. Uh, he's immutable. He's unable to change. Okay, those are those things that we can't share with God. They belong to the divine, to the deity himself. C communicable attributes, on the other hand, are those that we do share with him, though, get this, not as fully and perfectly as he has them. What are those? Well, I'll just name a few. Love, goodness, justice, kindness. God is love. He loves us. He allows us to love. That's part of being human, being made in his image, reason. There's many things we could go into. 
But listen, because we bear God's image, there is a manner in which we exhibit these characteristics in our own lives. And the possession of the ability or even the possession of the attributes themselves is something reserved only for who? For man in the creation account. God not only makes us in his image, but he allows us to reflect his image. Next week, we'll talk about how we don't reflect his image. We contrast his image and sin, okay, and what he does to help us do that. But the very fact that we can reflect God's characteristics gives us intrinsic value. Every person is valuable. As they say, from womb to the tomb, right? From the moment of conception to the moment of physical death, every person has value. We value human life. This is very important. If you were to continue in Genesis into chapter 2, you'll see that there's more details given to the creation of man. And if you look, just look there quickly at 2.7, look what it says. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Okay, this is more than just uh, the idea that we're able to breathe, the capacity to breathe. That's part of it. But as we understand mankind, especially as it's revealed throughout the Bible, mankind is given a soul. Mankind is more than just a physical being. Mankind is a spiritual being unlike anything else in creation. We've been given a soul. And what do we know about that? That soul is immortal. That's something you probably didn't come to church thinking about this morning. Your soul is immortal. Your soul is going to live on forever. It's going to live on either in the presence of God in heaven for all eternity or separated. We might even say estranged from God in hell. For all eternity, the soul will live on. So when you come into contact with any other image bearer of God, you have to get yourself thinking that I'm coming into contact with more than just a material thing. I'm coming into contact with more than just a physical human being. I'm interacting with a spiritual person. A spiritual person made in the image of God, made to worship, to reflect God and who he is, who bears God's image. Somebody who's valuable. Every single person you interact with every day, even if you don't like them that much, guess what? They're valuable. They're valuable. That, that, that's a whole other sermon series. I've shared this before. I'll share it again. Some of you are newer uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, said it well, and I'll quote him. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. He continues, but it is immortals whom we joke with, whom we work with, whom we marry, who we snub, and whom we exploit. They are either immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. He finishes by saying, your neighbor, that is, others made in God's image, is indeed one of the holiest objects ever presented to your senses. So who am I? Who am I? Well, 
Let's come at it from another angle. How do we like to define ourselves? Where do we like to wrap up our identity? It's what we do, right? Who we are, what we do. I'm a pastor. For you, it might be, I'm an engineer. I'm a business owner. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a teacher. I don't want to leave anybody out, so let me just say, or any other of the myriad things. I mean, there's too many to name. Think about the world and even sometimes ourselves. (laughs) What is that call that we continue to hear? Find your value in what you do. Or find your value in the outcomes of what you do. We might say that we're defined by how successful our careers are. We might say that we're defined by how happy our well-adjusted, our educated, our children are. Perhaps we might say that I, I, I am who or I am what impact I make on other people. But listen, God's word reminds us that we are defined by who God says we are. It reminds us that we are not valuable because of our vocation, you might say our calling. We're not valuable because of the outcomes of those things. We're not valuable based on feelings as we've already addressed. We cannot find our value there. We find our value in who God says that we are. So who am I? Who are you? I am not worthless. You are not worthless. We have value because God says that we have value. So we find our value in God and who he is and who he says that we are, not in all these other things. So I want to wrap up today's message with, I think it's a simple and powerful reminder. Let me remind you, we've seen three important indications of being created in God's image. We've said we're not accidents. We're God's special creation. We're not the sum of our feelings, right? We're who God says that we are, and we're not worthless. Because of God, because who God says we are, we have value. But I think sometimes I need to be reminded of something a little bit more that points to value. And so I do what any gospel minister does. I do what we do here every Sunday. Consider the gospel. Consider the price that God paid to redeem us from our sin and to restore his image in us so that it can more clearly reflect who he is. Think about that. I mean, maybe you don't feel valuable. Maybe you don't feel like you're worth very much. Let me remind you this, that God's sin is one and only son. To be born in the likeness, there you go, in the image of men, the one who is the exact representation of his being. He sent Jesus to live and to die and to rise again so that he would transform us into his image. So his image, right? So we could be redeemed after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. God has done this for no other part of his creation. He's done this for no other part of his creation, whether it be created things of the earth or the angels in heaven. So wonderfully significant 
So wonderfully valuable are we to God that he's done this only for us. Things into which the angels long to peek. God has only done that for us. So if you have any question as to whether you have value, whether you have significance, whether you have purpose in this life, if knowing that you share in God's characteristics and knowing that you've been given an immortal spirit are not enough, please, please, please find significance and purpose and value in Christ and the price paid by him to secure your redemption. It's not uncommon for me to say, and I'll say it to you as I say to people, so precious are you, so precious are you as God's creation that he sent Jesus to live and to die so that you might have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So friends, listen to me. In case no one's told you or in case you're too shy to stand in front of the mirror and say it to yourself, you are precious in God's eyes. You are precious in God's eyes. Uncovering our true identity, uncovering the answer to that age-old question, who am I, begins with embracing this truth. You bear God's image in this world. And there are truths that we've talked about that flow from that. I pray that God would give you the grace to not only comprehend it, but even sometimes when we can't comprehend it, by faith to just wrap our arms around that truth and say, praise be to God for making me who I am in his image. Amen and amen.